The, uh, my Bible reading this morning is from Isaiah 53. Uh, prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 53, that well-known prophecy that we'll be returning to quite a bit during this sermon series that's found on page 1147 in your pew Bible. And um, open it now, but I'm warning you, I'm going to do something a little bit non-traditional. I'm not going to read it until halfway through the sermon. Um, I hope that's okay. I'm going to do it, and um, I, I think it'll work out. It seemed to work out at 840. Hopefully, it'll work out here too. But let me try to set that, that really important prophecy of Christ up. So we've come to the season of Lent. Now, for those of you who didn't grow up in liturgical traditions, Lent is a season of uh, six Sundays leading up to Easter. And in all of those Sundays, we reflect on our sin and the suffering of Christ, and we take our sin to the cross, and we think about our repentance, okay? That's, the, that's what Lent is all about, and that's what we're going to do this year as a church, and the, the particular focus will be on our suffering. We will think about the suffering that comes into our life, and God's place in it, and sometimes feeling that he's absent from it. We'll think about who we are when we suffer, and ultimately, we'll come to the cross and think about what the cross means for us in our pain and in our suffering. And the title for the whole series comes from that phrase from Isaiah 53, Man of Sorrows. Now, all the sermons will be obviously rooted in Scripture. Scripture will be the basis for each of the sermons. But I'm also looking pretty heavily at a book by Tim Keller that he published in 2013 called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. So, six weeks of sermons to deal with human suffering. It all sounds pretty neat and tidy when I put it that way, doesn't it? Over the next six weeks, in six well-polished sermons, I will deal with your pain, your trauma, your midnight fears, your horrors. If only it were that easy. In the prayer, Chad mentioned that we've lost eight members over the last three weeks. Uh, if you go back to the beginning of the year, we've lost nine members in six weeks. And some of those losses were expected, and some of those losses, like Terry Hooksma this week, completely unexpected. And each of them, in their own way, brings pain and suffering into the lives of those families and, and into our life as a church. Each of them brings tears. Each of them brings loss. Each, each of those losses are tearing at the fabric of our lives. I am not going to be able to tidy up all that loss in six 20-minute sermons, if only I could. But there are things that I can say. There are things that we can say. I cannot answer all your questions, but I can put you in front of a hope that will sustain you, a hope that on Easter morning will stand over an empty grave and say, I am the resurrection and the life, I hold the keys to death in Hades. Do not be afraid. That's where we're headed. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's think a little bit more about the texture of our suffering. You probably all know that when it comes to human suffering and being a Christian, that, that we Christians often say that the, the problem of human suffering is one of the biggest problems we face when trying to fit our faith together, right? Why does a good God allow so much pain and suffering in the world and into our lives? I do interviews with uh, young people who are going to make profession of faith. And if that young person's a little older, I will always, always ask them the question, 
okay, you're ready to follow Jesus. How do you explain that a good God allows us so much terrible stuff to happen in this world? And they always groan when I ask them that question. And they groan because it's a hard question, but they also groan, and you can tell this, they groan because it's a question that they've been wrestling with, right? It's a question that they've been trying to answer and that they are still trying to answer. What I want all of us to see is that the problem of suffering is not just a problem for Christians in this world. I mean, it is a problem for us, but it's not just a problem for us. Every human being suffers. People from other religions suffer. Atheists suffer. And all of us have to figure it out. All of us have to figure out what is this and how do I deal with this? What do I do with this pain that comes into my life? It's one of the most important questions that any human being faces. How you answer that question, who you are in your pain and in your suffering is a huge part of makes you who you are. That's a huge part of what constitutes you. It's a fundamental question of your existence, of your life, and everybody has to face it. Do I wail and cry? Am I just sort of stoic, like nothing's going on? Do I medicate this? How do I handle my suffering? Fundamental question. And because it's so fundamental, um, philosophers and cultures and religions all through the ages have suggested answers to how you should handle your suffering. Some people say, for example, that you should handle your suffering stoically. You should be stoic in the face of your pain. What do we mean by that? Well, when we say someone is stoic, you know, he was stoic when he lost his mom. That means he was steady. He didn't let his emotions get the better of him. He kept doing what needed to be done. He was rock steady and not overly emotional. That's what we mean when we say someone was stoic. And you probably know that that word that we use now comes from an actual ancient philosophy that was very popular during Jesus' time, and that was called Stoicism. And as Stoicism is represented by thinkers like Cicero and thinkers like Seneca, and, and that was a well-worked-out philosophy. They taught what you should do in the face of pain. And, and their teaching basically was that, look, suffering, pain, death, is part of the natural order of things. It's not evil. It's just, it is what it is, right? It happens. And because you know it's going to happen, it is not logical for you to let your emotions get the better of you. You should try to master it. You should exercise self-control and, and detach from those feelings as soon as you can and move forward. You shouldn't let those things overwhelm you because they're going to happen. Just as an example of Stoic philosophy exercised in real life, Tim Keller quotes a letter that Seneca, one of the Stoic philosophers, wrote to a woman named Marcia. Marcia had lost her child. She was devastated by this loss. And she was trying to figure out what to do. So she wrote the great philosopher Seneca, and Seneca wrote her back and gave her, it's a long letter, gave her all kinds of advice about how she should behave in her suffering. And, and basically, she, he, he calls her to master her suffering, get control of it. And it's inevitable that you're going to feel a little bit sad, he says. But as soon as you can, you should plow forward. Here's how Keller summarizes the advice. Nature gives us no promise that we are allowed to keep our loved ones forever or even for long. Though your son died young, Marcia, he avoided many of the troubles of life, so you should submit to fate and not protest or struggle against it. It is illogical to struggle against and to get too emotional in the face of something as natural and inevitable 
as death. Stoicism is a Western philosophical tradition, but if you go to the East and look at some of the advice that the Easterners give on how to deal with suffering, some of that actually sounds quite a bit like Stoicism. What Buddhism teaches about suffering has some resonances here. Buddhists teach that suffering is something that is caused by excessive attachment and desire for the things of the world that are transitory, things that won't last. And so what you should do is you should moderate your attachment to these things. You should detach yourself from these things, and that way, when you lose them, you won't experience suffering. An example of that, or, or maybe an embodiment of that, is in the story of the Buddha himself, or the story of the guy, the legend of the guy who became the Buddha, which is, his name was Siddhartha Gautama. And he was a fabulously wealthy Eastern prince. And he lived with his father. He grew up in the palace with his father. And his father was determined that young Siddhartha would experience absolutely no suffering in his life. He was an early version of an ultimate helicopter parent. Okay? Just no, this, nothing's going to happen to my son. Everything's going to be fine for my son. Okay? But of course, the inevitable happened. One day, Siddhartha was chasing an arrow that flew outside the compound of the palace. And he saw four distressing sights. He saw a man who was sick. He saw a man who was very old and struggling. He saw a man who was dead and people mourning for him. And he saw a poor man. All these forms of suffering. And he didn't know what to do with it. It was obviously brand new for him. And it struck him so much that he decided that he was going to leave his family and leave his wealth and just wander the world until he figured out, how do I live in the face of this kind of suffering? And he wandered and he wandered until finally he meditated under a tree for days upon days. And he came to the conclusion that suffering was illusory. Ultimately, we will all be united in the one. That's what the Buddhists believe, right? The sort of oneness at the end of everything, everything coming together. And so there is, you know, we, we don't lose anything. And so you shouldn't attach yourself to things that are transitory in this world. You should practice detachment and then you will not suffer. Now you can hear, it's not, it's not stoicism exactly, but can you hear that they're kind of the same? They have that same sense of moderation and holding the world lightly. Can you also see how this approach is totally different than the approach of Jesus? Siddhartha detaches from this world. Does Jesus detach from the suffering of this world? Listen to the prophecy of Isaiah that I'm about to read, this prophecy of the suffering servant which points to Jesus and his death. And see if you hear detachment here or something else. Isaiah says, who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. He was a man of suffering, a man of sorrows, and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper his hand. After he suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear away their iniquities. Therefore, I'll give him a portion among the great. He'll divide spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Can you hear how absolutely different, how absolutely different this approach to suffering is? Siddhartha attaches from the sufferings and the pains of this world. Jesus moves towards them. He attaches himself to them. He becomes a human being, and he doesn't just become a human being. In his humanity, he consistently, through his life, you all know, moves towards the worst stuff. The people who are in pain, he does it his whole life. He becomes the man of sorrows. And if you read it, and you just heard it, Isaiah 53, all the worst sufferings are included in his life. Physical pain, he was crushed, pierced, and wounded. Rejection. He was despised and rejected by mankind. Shame. People turn their face from him because of their condition. Loneliness. He was cut off from the land of the living. Death. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. And unlike us, this suffering was completely undeserved, right? We know that in our lives, sometimes the suffering that we experience is our own fault, right? We do foolish things, and we bear the consequences. So always some portion of our, of our suffering in our life is, is partly us, but that's not Jesus, right? Jesus is completely innocent. His suffering is a suffering of an innocent. When you think of the suffering he takes on, think of the children of Sandy Hook, Think of the children of Uvalde. Think of what we feel when we see innocent children go through what they went through. That's the pain that Jesus goes down into, the pain of the innocent. And not only does he suffer these things, he suffers them for us. By his wounds we are healed. The punishment that brought us peace is upon him. It's such a different approach from the Stoics and from Siddhartha. Seneca told Marcia to just, you know, move along in your grief. 
Jesus comes right down beside Marcia, sits beside her in her grief and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken us? Have you ever been with someone whose grief is so sharp and whose pain is so sharp that they cry out, that they wail or scream? Have you ever been with someone like that? Um, some of you have, I have. Some of you have been that person. That is the sound that Jesus makes when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the pain that Jesus enters into and attaches himself to for us. And he bears that pain and three days later he rises from the dead and then he destroys that pain and he destroys death and he overcomes it. And, and that makes, this is, this is what profoundly unique about the way Jesus does suffering, something Really strange happens. By suffering, Jesus destroys suffering. By taking on the evil and the horror of suffering, Jesus destroys the evil and the horror. The evil thing in the hands of God, in the hands of Jesus, becomes the tool that God uses to destroy the evil thing. By suffering, he destroys suffering. By death, he destroys death. He becomes sin for us, as Paul said, so that the power of sin could be destroyed. Being a human being is hard and suffering is terrible and I have sympathy for anyone who's going through that kind of pain. And I am not here saying these things to show any contempt for Stoics or any contempt for Buddhists, but I am here to say there is no one like Jesus. There is nobody like Jesus who comes towards you and goes down into your pain and bleeds and hopes and ultimately overcomes. That's why he's my Lord, he's my story, he's my savior, and I hope he's yours too. And when Jesus is your Lord, and, th and that's your story, this story of what Jesus did, overcoming suffering by suffering, when that's the story that you follow, you stand in a unique position with relation to your own suffering. Now, this is really hard to understand, and I hope I make it clear, okay? So, when people deal with suffering, if you look at the different ways, there's sort of two poles. On the one hand, there's fatalism, which is the belief that, you know what, suffering's inevitable, you should just accept it and behave heroically, okay? Just deal with it. That's fatalism, that's like what the Stoics do. On the other side, and I don't have a good word for this, I would, I'm going to call it fightism. It's like, no, you should never surrender to this. You should always fight suffering. You should always fight against it. It's always chaotic. It's always bad, okay? And, and that's kind of, this fight is kind of where our culture is at, right? Our, there's never been a culture that's more adverse to pain than ours. We do absolutely everything we can to avoid all forms of suffering, right? So fightism, fatalism. As Christians following Jesus... We're neither of these things. We're not fatalists, right? We do, we do fight suffering. We know that suffering comes from sin and from injustice, and we're, we're not going to put up with those things. We fight against the sources of suffering. We try to eliminate them. And we, we, when we see someone who's suffering, we don't detach from them. We move towards them, right? So we, we do. We fight suffering and its sources. But we also say because we see that Jesus overcomes his suffering by suffering and that in the hands of the Father, suffering becomes a tool, we realize that our suffering too can become a tool in the hands of God. 
that our suffering is sometimes something not that's pure chaos, but has meaning. That the God who loves us will come alongside us even in our pain and somehow work this towards good. This is hard to say and hard to see unless you think about it in a real life person. In his book, Tim Keller tells the story of a woman named Emily. Emily was a person who thought her life was great, just perfect. She had four kids, husband who loved her, beautiful home. She went to church, everything was great until one day out of the blue, her husband left her for a woman she thought was her friend. He left her and he did not come back. A sinful, evil act. And in the face of that, she did what we would all do. She cried out against this. She said, God, how could you let this happen? How could you let this pain come into my life? What earthly good could this possibly do? I am miserable. My kids are miserable. I have to sell my house now. This is awful. This is evil. But on the other side, she also said, while she lamented like that, she also said, I'm learning to trust God in the middle of this pain. And I feel him supporting me in the middle of this pain. I'm not going to be a doormat, but I know that God has a purpose for my life. And in this, somehow, he will use this evil thing to make me the person that I need to be. So she yells at God and says she can feel God holding her up. She screams at God, and yet she trusts God with her future. That's life under the cross. That's the position we live with respect to our sorrow. It's this paradoxical thing where we name it as evil and we trust God to lead us through it and even in it. That's the life and the position of people who come to this table and lift up the cup that you will just lift up in a moment. Because in that cup, is the blood of someone who suffered terrible evil and injustice, murder and torture of an innocent man. But in the same cup, you find your salvation. Thanks be to God for the gift of the man of sorrows. Amen. Lord, there's so much goodness in this room, but just beneath the surface, you know there's so much pain, and you know it because you've borne it, and you've felt it, and you've lived it. Lord, we bring that pain to you. We bring you our laments, and we also say, Lord, we still trust you. We, we still trust you to hold our future. Who else do we go to? Lord, you have the words of everlasting life. And Lord, now we pray that as we come to your table, you will Feed us with this, this good food that will give us the strength to keep moving forward in our lives. Amen.